Hey everybody and welcome back to Cash's Corner. We're finally returning from our break to kick off season seven, if you can believe it, with episode one here today. There's so much going on in the mainstream media. Jan, what are we gonna talk about now? You know, what everyone's been buzzing about this week is this, you know, perhaps President Trump is gonna be arrested by the Manhattan DA. It turns out actually that the grand jury has been canceled. That's mm -hmm. incredible. There's this kind of groundbreaking testimony from Robert Costello, the former Cohen uh, attorney. We're gonna look at that. Um, also a lot happening overseas. You know, we've got Xi Jinping meet, meeting with Vladimir Putin and also seemingly brokering like a neighborly deal with uh, you know, Saudi and Iran. Kind of unbelievable stuff going on. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, it's been an interesting couple of weeks since we've uh, throttled off season six and get ready for season seven. It seems as if the news cycle was awaiting our return. Um, yeah, let's start uh, in, in, our, in the wheelhouse that is uh, law and order. Seems to be front and center now. Since we've been gone, this has arisen to the level of a grand jury for the district attorney in New York City or Manhattan. This guy named Alvin Bragg. But let's rewind the tape a little bit just to get everybody up to speed before we dive into what's going on. Remember, the crux of the matter is this district attorney is saying Trump violated the law by illegally using money through his lawyer to pay someone off. That's essentially what they're saying. DOJ, at a federal level, looked at this investigation through their office in the Southern District of New York. And I mean Biden's DOJ, not just any DOJ. They were presented the evidence that the gentleman you talked to, Robert Costello, and along with Michael Cohen, Trump's former attorney, were presented with effectively the same evidence, and they, DOJ, decided not to bring a case because there was nothing to charge President Trump. That's how the Department of Justice is supposed to operate. Then, if you recall, the attorney general for the state of New York, yet another layer in the legal system, not federal, not county, but state, Letitia James. It's where she campaigned on convicting Donald Trump of something. Literally didn't say what it was, just that we are going, we've got the man, now we're gonna find the crime, essentially is what she did. She reviewed the case as the state's number one law enforcement officer and declined to prosecute. So now we're down to Alvin Bragg at the Manhattan District Attorney level, which is the county prosecution for Manhattan, New York City, essentially. And he's saying, well, he said publicly, or he's leaked publicly, that they're going to indict Trump. So that's where we are now. Um, and as our audience, just a reminder for our audience, we tape on Wednesdays. So we're not sure what's going to happen Friday, but we'll give it our best go. Um, but... What, what President Trump did over the weekend was basically put them on defense. And I'm paraphrasing his, his posts on Truth Social uh, for the last four or five days, but he said there was an unlawful leak from the grand jury that Alvin Bragg is convening, along with his office, about the status of the case. And so what President Trump said was that information led him to believe that he's going to be arrested and indicted this week. But I think that tectonically altered the landscape um, for Alvin Bragg. It sort of sent this thing that was already front and center into the stratosphere. 
and made it the only thing people are literally talking about. I'll just jump in. Some people think that this whole thing was actually a distraction from bigger things, which you know, some of which we're going to talk gonna about later. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Some yeah. of those things, I, I want to spend more time on those things and less of this, but yeah. we have to cover this because yeah. it involves the former and current candidate for to be the next president of the United States. So looking at it from my background as a former public defender and prosecutor who's been in front of grand juries and tried cases in state and federal court, I always say, that's how I was taught, evaluate the evidence and then look at the law. And if there's a charge, you bring it. If there's not, you don't. This case, I think, tragically shows that the politicization, weaponization, whatever verbiage you want to use of our law enforcement community, as we've talked about it extensively at DOJ and FBI at the federal level, has made its way to the county and state level. But you've also seen sort of a shift in the narrative um, that people are now, people who are not Trump supporters are out there vocally saying, this is not a case that can be legally brought. Okay, what does that mean? All right, so the crux of the matter is Alvin Bragg is saying this $130,000 that Michael Cohen, when Cohen was Trump's attorney some years ago, paid Stormy Daniels out that amount of money uh, pursuant to some non-disclosure agreement to settle a private matter. I don't know the details of that. That's just what's publicly reported. And now they're saying that, A, that's a misdemeanor. And if that's the case, the statute of limitations on that misdemeanor charge is two years. So we're well past that. So what they have to do to even secure a charge that su survives the statute of limitations is tie that misdemeanor to a felony. This is where it gets legally problematic from my understanding. The only, there's no New York state felony they can tie it to. They're attempting to tie it to a federal law felony, which you can't do that. There are two, there's two different court systems for a reason. Um, federal law on this side and state. Well, and, and it sounds like those systems decided this is, this, there's nothing here. Two of them did, right. The, at the New York statewide level, they decided that. And at the federal DOJ level, they decided that as well. And let's put a pin in that for a second. If you recall Hillary Clinton, when she used campaign finance dollars to pay a million dollars for the Steele dossier, which she listed as a legal fee, because Perkins Coie took that money and then paid Fusion GPS and Christopher Steele, the DOJ did not prosecute her there. Instead, the FEC ended up fining her some four or five years later for a monetary amount in a civil fine. And so if that's the precedent, because the facts to me are analogous to that exact situation, um, Alvin Bragg is saying the money that Michael Cohen used to pay was hidden as a legal fee mm -hmm. as payment to this person for mm -hmm. X, Y, or Z. Well, if that's the case, then there's no crime. I think that's why DOJ didn't bring a prosecution. I think that's why Letitia James didn't bring a prosecution. We'll see what Alvin Bragg decides to do. But the evidence should be the focal point of this, because right now the focal point is why do we have a two-tier system of justice at not just the federal level, but now at the state level? So, Gash, we keep hearing this term as we talk about, you know, legal realities, a mm -hmm. uh, grand jury, right? So, so. How does this actually work? What does it mean that this grand jury was canceled, at least temporarily? Um, how is this going to play out? Yeah, great point. I think it's worth 
just quickly summarizing what this is. For me, it's, it's old hat because of my, my, my past. But grand juries, whether at the state or federal level, are convened. They're larger than the juries you see at trial. You know, if you think of a TV crime show where you see the lawyer standing up in a courtroom with the judge and the box over there with the jury. Those are usually six to 12 people. Grand juries are much larger, anywhere from 24 to about 36 people. And they convene for a lengthy period of time, but not every day. Because the grand jury, remember this, this is the distinction that people forget. Alvin Bragg may be the district attorney, but the grand jury has to bring the charging document. The district attorney comes in and presents evidence through his prosecutors to the grand jury. They say, we think a crime has been committed. Here is the evidence. Witnesses, documents, videotapes, recordings, what have you, right? And the grand jury, the, the standard in the grand jury is a preponderance of evidence. What does that mean? 51% to 49. Not that the defendant committed the crime, just that was it more possible than not that the crime was committed. Mm. That's all the grand jury's job is. That's it. They, is, they are not testifying or making a claim about guilt or innocence. They are just saying there's sufficient evidence to charge. Then those cases go to trial like we all see, and then the, the standard is guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, which it should be, it's a constitutional standard. And so what Alvin Bragg has been doing these however many months is convening these, this grand jury. But since there are people in the community who are called in for months at a time, they can't just come in at the drop of a dime. So we as prosecutors schedule them ahead of time. We say, hey, this grand jury investigating this case needs to sit on Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday of this week, next week, and the following week so that people can change their schedules and get in on time. What rarely happens is the schedule has been set and the grand jury like this week was convened for Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And then at the last minute, the prosecutors come in and say, you're canceled, meaning we don't need to convene today. That means, in my opinion, that the prosecutors, Alvin Bragg and his team on this case involving Trump, don't believe they have the evidentiary threshold met to submit the case to the grand jury for review. Essentially, they're saying, I think we're short, and if the media reporting is accurate, they're looking for another witness or new evidence or more evidence to maybe um, take on what Costello has put forth, and maybe Michael Cohen's now been sort of, um, his credibility has been shot and defeated. I don't know the details, only the grand juror and the district attorney's office is going to know that, but I know from a prosecutorial standpoint, if you have the goods and you present it to the grand jury, you go and ask the grand jury to return what's called a bill of indictment, a bill, a true bill to indict, to formally charge a defendant. And there's a saying from back in the New York uh, jurisprudence days and some TV shows that, you know, you could basically indict a ham sandwich. What does that mean? It means it doesn't take much to meet that 5149 threshold to say something maybe wrong happened here. What does that show us on the outside? That if they haven't met that low threshold, then their case might have a serious evidentiary problem. They could salvage it, they could find new evidence, find another witness, find another stack of papers, I don't know. But right now it's all on hold. We also have, you know, former attorney for Cohen basically saying that Trump knew nothing, according to Cohen's own testimony to him, mm -hmm. Trump didn't know anything about this anyway. It was sort of done on the side. 
it's some pretty damning testimony, right? And normally you don't hear from the internal workings of a grand jury because you're not supposed to. Remember, everybody knows who Michael Cohen is. He was convicted. He, well, let's go back before that. Michael Cohen is President Trump's personal attorney. The first time President Trump ran for office. Then they had a parting of ways. Michael Cohen was eventually convicted in federal court and sentenced to three years in federal prison for crimes of lying, deceit, and fraud, amongst other things. That's the star witness for Alvin Bragg on this case that we're talking about. And obviously he's been before the grand jury. He's been very public about it. What I didn't even know about was this other gentleman, Costello. Costello was Michael Cohen's attorney in the past. And Costello, this is a unique twist. It's a little geeky, but I'm gonna get into it anyway. As Michael Cohen's attorney, Costello is not allowed under attorney-client privilege to talk about what he represented Michael Cohen on in the conversations he had. Surprisingly, I didn't even know this either, Michael Cohen waived all of his attorney-client privileges with Costello so Costello could talk to federal prosecutors, which he did. He, Costello said two years ago he not only spoke to them, but he provided them with a ream of documentation from his engagements with Michael Cohen. Then he went to the state grand jury, or excuse me, the district attorney's grand jury in New York City, I believe on Monday of this week, and testified. And then he walked out and gave an eight-minute resuscitation of what happened. This grand jury has now heard from A, Michael Cohen, a convicted federal felon whose bias and animosity for the target of this investigation is well known, versus Costello, this career prosecutor, former federal prosecutor, now private attorney with an established record, no criminal history, representing some of the most high-profile clients in New York State criminal history, comes out and says, swinging, literally says, the things that defeat any potential prosecution in my mind. And I'm summarizing, he did this on his own, did this payment on his own. He did not notify President Trump about it, and he did it quietly to keep things quiet. From Melania not knowing, even his wife not knowing, it, or at least those are Costello's words. And Costello provided documentation and emails to back that up that he... I'm guessing, took as a lawyer in lifetime notes with his client and, and other matters. What was shocking to me was not just that bit of testimony that completely contradicts what Michael Cohen has said, but that he held up a, a, a ream of paperwork that he said he gave to federal prosecutors and that he gave to this grand jury and that Alvin Bragg only used... Today, after giving all those materials to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, out of 321 emails, they cherry-picked six emails to ask me about. And of course, they took them out of context. When they took them out of context, I told the grand jurors, I don't know whether this will ultimately come to fruition or not, I told them to ask for the entire packet, and I held it up. I said, there's 321 emails. You need to see each and every email, which follow in chronological fashion and give you the life history of Michael Cohn dealing with our firm some six pages of hundreds of pages of documentation. Now, let's be clear, as a prosecutor, you are allowed to select your evidence, but as a prosecutor, you're not allowed to withhold evidence of innocence or something that might be damaging to your case to the grand jury you're presenting to. And that's essentially what Costello said. He said, why have you, the grand jury, not seen all of this information that I've testified about? I have it recorded. It's here for you to hold and read. That, to me, is, is a pretty, if it proves out that that's what actually happened, is an abuse of prosecutorial powers. And Alvin Bragg has now put himself in the crosshairs, though I don't think anyone's actually gonna investigate him because it's New York, um, about prosecutorial misconduct.
if you have information about a potential charge and you withhold it from the grand jury, that is illegal. And essentially, that's what Costello has come out and said. I had to go in there and testify. I had to go set the record straight. I don't even know what his politics are. I have zero idea. And he has the documentary evidence to completely contradict what Michael Cohen's saying. So now we have a pause in the case. And if we're to believe the public reporting, which, you know, I don't know if we can, but it says they're looking for another witness. It's tragic that our system has been politicized, but maybe we can use this as an example that breaks through to everyday America to say, look, we weren't conspirators when we were talking about Russiagate. We weren't conspirators when we were talking about some of the harsh and undue treatments of some of the January 6 detainees. We're saying this two-tier system of justice when it comes to things like Hunter Biden and the classified documents and all this stuff, it's unfortunately a reality, but one that can be solved, but it require, it's going to require a lot of work. Well, listen, you mentioned Russiagate, and I, I want to mention this as well. Like recently, John Solomon is actually mm -hmm. suing the National Archives. You and him are actually uh, President Trump's representatives to the National Archives. He designated you. There's all these declassified documents that are just have been in limbo for a long time. A lot of our viewers and other people, including myself, are like, where are these documents? Yeah. So I guess I guess we may we may get them finally. Uh, that's the hope. You know, I think John Solomon took a great step forward. He and I had been trying to engage with the National Archives as President Trump's designated representatives to get the material that was declassified to the American public. I think John Solomon brilliantly took this case to federal court because we couldn't get anywhere with the National Archives and DOJ and whatever else. But you will see in the court filings themselves the comments directly from the National Archives, which will speak for itself, I'll just summarize, um, so they're not attributed to me, but it essentially has the number one lawyer at the National Archives saying, the declassified binder of documents was sent to the DOJ. So just pause on that for a second. The declassified, I'm not saying that. John Solomon's not saying that. The head of the National Archives is saying the documents are declassified. So how come two plus years later we don't have them? And that's the purpose of John's suit. And I don't know how a judge rules against it. He was supposed to be granted access and the public was supposed to be shown these documents. And, you know, to be continued, we'll watch the case carefully, but hopefully it moves swiftly through the system and we have a binder of documents for the world to see. So, well, so but what, what is the time frame on such a case? Uh, that's, right? you, as we've talked about, once you're in federal court, it can go lightning fast or it can go hmm. slower than slow. And it's up to the judge who gets the case and how fast he wants to move it. And it's going to be up to, at this point, the DOJ to respond to, to John Solomon's lawsuit and say, we agree, we disagree, we need more time, X, Y, or Z. So I guess we're on, I know, it's, it's the never end, you know, all roads lead to Russiagate and we never get away from it. <laughs> so let's uh, switch gears a little bit now and let's look at Xi Jinping and communist China. You know, there's been this journey to broker some kind of agreement mm -hmm. between Iran and Saudi, which is something that... You know, the U.S. might have been in the middle of at some point or preventing. And then later, a trip to Russia with a lot of kind of warm words being exchanged. Vladimir Putin sort of supporting the Chinese peace treaty, so-called Chinese right. Communist Party version of the peace treaty. And the promulgation that uh, Joe Biden and his family received a million dollars from CCP affiliates. But you're right. While we, the United States of America, under our current leadership, have been looking left, Russia and China have been going right. 
they teamed up. Our two biggest adversaries, we've said this on the show many, 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 many times. Our two biggest adversaries are China and Russia. Full stop. Our biggest national security threat from a terrorism standpoint is Iran. They are the world's number one state sponsor of terror. I mean, these three countries have gotten together. And I think it's a horrific blow to global security, not just American national security. Just think about this, Jan. Saudi Arabia and Iran, who were at war literally last week, firing missiles into each other's countries for years on end, blowing up infrastructure sites and oil rigging sites and hurting and killing civilians while at war, have now brokered a peace deal thanks to Xi Jinping and the CCP. They have agreed, Saudi and Iran have agreed to establish diplomatic ties. What does that mean? They are going to open embassies in each other's country for the first time in forever. That means they will have diplomatic officials there. That means they will have law enforcement from their country there. That means they will have military personnel from their country there. That means they will have intelligence officers from their respective countries in each other's countries, in their embassies. That's just the governmental aspect of it. What does it mean from the private sector standpoint? Saudi Arabia is going to provide Iran with access to its financial system, banking infrastructure. It's going to provide Iran with oil if it needs it. And it's going to provide Iran access through the kingdom of Saudi Arabia to Europe and other people in the world to get materials, weapons, and other supplies that we don't want Iran to have, specifically as it relates to their nuclear program. One of Iran's biggest threats that we've always tried to countermand as the United States, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, is we don't want Iran to have a nuclear weapon. President Obama and President Trump took two drastically different approaches to that, right? Obama took the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, and let's call that Avenue A. Donald Trump withdrew from that and issued heavy sanctions on Iran, along with a number of other national security measures to suffocate their economy and preclude them from gaining the uranium and the ability to enrich it to nuclear weapons grade. So not getting into the weeds of Obama-Trump, let's just stay on Iran, Saudi Arabia, and China, and Russia. Now they have access to some of the world's superpowers who can fill the gaps that America had blocked Iran from obtaining. So to me, it's usually problematic just on the nuclear front, putting aside the economic, the banking leverage and everything else. And then we get to the terrorism front. Now does Iran have access to Russia and Chinese arms supplies? That would be problematic for many, many, many reasons. And so this deal that was brokered, you're right, and the US was nowhere to be found, no leadership from this administration was over there, not from the White House, State Department, Pentagon, that I can tell. By the way, Jan, having worked on these matters, don't happen overnight. This is months and months of work, which means Xi Jinping in China, Vladimir Putin in Russia, MBS in Saudi Arabia, and the Ayatollah and the leadership structure in Iran have been talking about this for a long, long time. And they convened this global summit, and here we now have Iran and Saudi Arabia as allies. And I'm not saying we shouldn't help the civilian population of Iran. That's never um, what I'm saying. The problem is how do we help the civilian population but also defeat the national security threat to America and the world? And I don't think this helps the United States. It's kind of hard to fathom. And but the reality is, though, that the U.S. still remains what you would call in the jargon the main security partner for Saudi, right? How does that, is this, this doesn't change overnight. 
Well, yes and no. So it, 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 you're right, it doesn't change overnight. And then there's the other question, let me just jump in. And the, the other question is just, you know, energy. Obviously, you know, Saudi's providing yeah. a lot of oil, especially in a context where the U.S. has lowered its production dramatically. So, no, but, this, I mean, this is a complex situation. And I agree. So you're totally right to me. And, and I think to you, not to speak for you, but energy is a matter of national security, right? And Saudi Arabia, they, remember, we're two plus years into the Biden administration. So it's not, remember, Joe Biden, under his policies, price of gas skyrocketed. Reminder for all, he went to Saudi Arabia to try to mend the fences with MBS and bring the oil prices down. That didn't work. I think during that entire time, now we know, Saudi has been meeting with the likes of Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and their counterparts in Iran and forging some sort of deal. The biggest threat, in my opinion, here, outside of what we've talked about, is the petrodollar. Right now, the international oil reserves and the international oil trading system, for lack of a better word, work on the petrodollar. It's a U.S. dollar-backed system. Just think about this. China has come in and basically said, we're going to switch that. You, Saudi Arabia, don't need the U.S. dollar anymore. We, China, will use the yuan, the renminbi, to come in and replace the petrodollar with the petro yuan. Just think about that. Wipe, if, if they succeed in this, I'm not saying they're succeeding, yeah. but that's the plan. They've been public about it. If they do that, America, for the first time in modern history, will not have the dollar backing the largest energy sector on, on planet Earth. Just, I'll, I'll just jump in. It would be a bit like Saudi kind of committing suicide because the yuan is completely at the vagaries of the Chinese. The value is completely at the vagaries of the Chinese Communist Party. Right. No, you're absolutely right. Some people would call it monopoly money. Yeah, it's, it, and that, and you know, one of President Trump's, you know, hallmarks against China was talking about the Chinese manipulation of its currency when it suits them. You know, just they'll pull the lever because they don't operate under the same rule of law that we do. They'll make it cheaper if it benefits them. They'll make it more expensive if it benefits them. Forget the rest of the world. And if they replace the dollar as the reserve currency in this oil industry. Um, then truly Saudi Arabia will not have to look to the United States for this energy relationship. It won't need us. And remember, the United States of America, not Saudi Arabia, is the largest export of oil on planet Earth. So Saudi Arabia seems to be making a play to say, well, come on in, Xi Jinping in China, and we'll do business with you. And if it's a better deal for us, then maybe we won't talk to the U.S. anymore. And so that would be shocking, Jan. Saudi Arabia is one of America's greatest allies in the Middle East. But it just seems to me as if no one's even talking to them right now. And by no one, I mean our political leadership at the White House, the State Department, you know, and, and elsewhere. They're just out there making all these deals with Iran and having China broker them. Then they're talking to China and Russia on access to their financial institutions, banking systems, securing weaponry and other supplies from the countries that they are newly partnering with. And they're not looking at America anymore for it. It's, it's drastic, it's hugely problematic to our national security interests. Well, and then you have the Chinese Communist Party coming in and uh, with this, in February, with this peace deal, you know, for Russia and Ukraine, basically saying, we're going to be the ones to, to broker this deal. Vladimir Putin is behind it. Of course, it doesn't require Russia to remove itself from Ukraine. And I want to kind of remind our viewers that it's actually, you know, this Chinese Communist Party regime is actively pursuing three genocides by my count. Mm -hmm. It's just such a such a bizarre reality that we're working in. It's, it, it's 
I would say it's laughable, but it's so far beyond that, Jan, that it's truly detrimental to global security, not just American security. I mean, think about it. Think about this. The Chinese Communist Party and the CCP are brokering peace negotiations in Europe. Where is the United States of America? Last month, Joe Biden went to Eastern Europe and committed more blood and treasure to the Ukraine and didn't host one meeting about a diplomatic resolution to the war in the Ukraine. Not one, not one conversation that I saw, not one meeting that I heard about. And so what happens, just like in Saudi Arabia, who is now ignoring this leadership structure on the global stage when it comes to all things Ukraine, China and Russia are ignoring. And they're filling in the gaps that America would normally be leading out on. And of course, it's a total farce for China to go in and say, we're going to be the peace negotiators. But just think about the messaging and the propaganda that the CCP gains from this. They're going out to the world and saying, we're asking for peace. They know they're, they couldn't be bigger hypocrites because they're committing genocide in their own country. Um, and they're not asking Russia to withdraw or do anything. But they're getting the narrative out there that China, the CCP, is the peace negotiators of the modern day, not the United States of America. And then they're going to be the ones that get to set the table who sits there and what's resolved and how it's resolved if these talks continue. But they've already established the parameters because the United States of America has done nothing to establish or work towards peace in the Ukraine except commit more American dollars and more American manpower there. And that's the difference. We are being outmaneuvered on the global stage by the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin when it comes to the Ukraine. And this deal, um, this farce, is an example of it. I'm not saying it's been successful or will succeed, but you have to look at it from this standpoint. I think Americans and the world got so used to the fact that America would be the global referee, the peace settler, uh, to bring people to the table, that now that we're not even there, I don't know that anyone knows how to react to that. They're just like, oh, can't be real, not something to pay attention to. But look at what we just covered in this episode. Saudi and Iran are now partners and allies brokered by this, the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin have been meeting for three straight days in Russia, um, talking about ending global conflicts. We know they're lying, but they're having these discussions and telling the world, talking about bringing peace to Ukraine, talking about funding each other's economies, propping up the renminbi, the yuan, making that the petrodollar. All of these conversations are now happening on the world stage, and America is nowhere to be found. And I think that is the biggest loss to American national security interests and, our, and that of our allies. I don't, do you think France or England wants a nuclear-armed Iran? Do you think they want the, the Chinese Communist Party to be the leaders on their continent, because that's where Russia is, after all, and so is the Ukraine, about peace negotiations? Um, it's absurd. Well, the, the truth is, I, I don't even know the answer to this question at this point. No, no one does. Yeah. And that's, that's the scary part. Normally, it's at least we are at the table, if not leading the conversation at the table with the people there and engaging on security and peace talks. We're not even there. We're going to have to see how all this develops. <laughs> yeah, we'll cover it <laughs> on our show. Absolutely. You know, I, maybe on a kind of kind of a fascinating note as we finish up for today, you know, you actually have been involved in this song, <laughs> which I, I was looking on the 
digital song sales chart on Billboard today, it's actually the number one song, bizarrely, topping Miley Cyrus and, and many <laughs> and many other singers. Uh, yeah, you know, Jan, I, I haven't really spoken out about it, um, so I'm glad to just give the backstory. The song is called Justice For All, and I got a call from my friend Ed Henry, who's in the uh, um, news industry as well. And we started chatting about ways that, um, for whatever your positions are politically on January 6th, I think we've always talked about it on our show, and, and it's been talked about elsewhere, that lots of those defendants have been treated either unjustly or harshly or denied bail when they shouldn't have, and that has caused a financial problem for many families. So we thought, what would be a way that we can raise awareness and money for them? And we came up with the song called Justice For All, where we, um, and I don't think most of America knows this, but the defendants who are detained in the D.C. jail from January 6th sing the national anthem every night for like something like 760 consecutive nights and running. And so we found out about this. We went and um, actually captured that audio. And through some wonderful friends um, in the music industry, we were able to, as they say, digitize it. So you have to do a master copy and all that. And then we thought, how do we make it a little more powerful? Well, you know, President Trump has one of the biggest voices in America on this. And he agreed to record a reciting of the Pledge of Allegiance. So we took the national anthem and the Pledge of Allegiance and interconnected them and added some music. And the powerful thing about it is, we also created a video that everyone can watch for it, but the powerful thing about it is the people who have been impacted most are the ones raising awareness. Now, did we think it was gonna go number one uh, for seven straight days on the iTunes chart last week? No, we didn't think that. But I think it's the response of so much of the American public that this is on their minds front and center. And I think the music industry, um, just like Hollywood, um, has been treating um, certain sectors of the American public with their political views rather than their professional. And so I think it's cool that we found a way to b literally break through the music and Hollywood industry as you said, we spent no money on this. When it was iTunes number one for, on Apple Music for a week, people thought it was unheard of that it was there for a day, let alone seven. Then Billboard is the, uh, for, and I didn't know this till like just last month, that's the standard, gold standard for music um, sales and computations and rankings. And they only put their, their charts out once a week. And then yesterday, Justice For All was number one on the Billboard chart you cited, which is unheard of. I mean, just think of the people that are on that chart. Miley Cyrus, Taylor Swift, Morgan Wallen, Rihanna, One Republic. These aren't, uh, you know, nobodies. And uh, so it was a pretty cool project. And, you know, I was blessed to be a part of it. And I hopefully will be able to do some good for certain certain families um, and, and, and help, help a few folks out in the process. And I'll just highlight for people that this is the digital song sales chart. It's kind of astounding that that there's been this kind of, you know, massive groundswell of, of, of interest in this in this piece. You know, very, very different from most of what's on there. Yeah, I mean, the hope is, besides what we've talked about, the, the hope is also that other entertainers, musicians, artists, what have you, can see that you don't need to spend $500,000 creating a product or something that you can, if you make something that resonates with the American people and you talk about it on Epoch Times or put it out on free speech platforms like Truth Social, it can grow fast. And that's, that's the ultimate goal. So, Cash, I think it's time for our episode one, season seven shout out. 
I can't believe it, Jan. We are back for season seven, episode one, and the shout out goes to Robert Gamir. Thanks so much for posting on our message board. Thanks to everybody who participates in our weekly live chats. We are having a great time there, and we appreciate the audience coming back for season seven. So Robert, we're back for you and everybody else, and we will see you next week on Cash's Corner. <laughs> <laughs>